Hey folks, thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show here, and got a really fun one in store for you today, because I am joined by Cedric Evelay and Alex Ham of Lol Bikes to talk about their really kind of revolutionary super drive derailleur drivetrain reinvention. And this is the second time that we've had Cedric on the show, and about a year and a half ago, we chatted shortly after the public launch of the Superdrive about what the concept is and how it works and how we came up with it. So if you haven't listened to that episode, or if it's just been a while, you should probably check that out first, and there's a link in the show notes that'll get you there. But the reason I wanted to have them back on is that the first Superdrive bikes are getting delivered to customers now, and... Alex and Cedric do a really good job of kind of peeling back the curtain and talking about the process of founding a bike company, getting their products to be accepted by the industry at large and the customers and what it all takes to just actually get a very cool idea off the ground and make it a reality. So this is a really fun one. And Cedric and Alex have a ton of good stuff to say about the whole process and getting bike companies to adopt their drivetrain and all the rest and think you're really going to enjoy it. I sure did. So let's get right into my conversation with Cedric and Alex of Lyle Bikes. Well, Cedric, Great to have you back on the show here and very pleased to be joined by Alex as well. And well, last time we spoke, Cedric, uh, while Bikes was just you, but the team's growing and rather a lot has happened in the year and a half or so since we last had you on the show. So excited to kind of do a bit of a rundown here and get an update on what you've been up to and how things are progressing with the Superdrive. But before we dive into all that, uh, Alex, how about you just introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you're doing over at Lau? Sure. Well, uh, hey, my name's Alex. <laughs> um, I, I come from South Africa originally. Um, my wife and I are, are in the process of immigrating to Canada. Um, and I joined Cedric in, uh, in late December, early Jan this year. And um, yeah, just sort of, I'm a mechanical engineer by trade. So um, my job description is or my title is mechanical engineer, but my job description is is incredibly broad, um, <laughs> as a, as a, as kind of a startup is with just two people. So I do everything from from some of the the website stuff to some of the manufacturing to some of the production and and design and R and D and and uh, yeah, it's kind of it's been quite an adventure. It's really uh, it's really different, moving country, moving place. Um, that whole side of that venture and then along with that changing from a from a more sort of structured office job to a to a wild startup where where uh, where we work when there's work and we we go for rides when there's no work so it's been quite a quite a great time so far yeah i guess we should probably just do a bit of a chat about what has progressed since uh we last spoke here and a half ago and i mean when we last talked cedric uh you had just announced the super drive to the world and uh folks haven't listened should probably go back and listen to our first episode for a lot of that rundown and bit of information about what the super drive is so we'll kind of 
skip past a lot of that for this episode, having covered that previously. But, um, you know, when we last spoke, you had prototyped a couple of bikes yourself and were working with a couple of bike manufacturers on getting the drivetrain out into the world. But, uh, you know, we've got Nikolai, the first of those to go public with him anyway, has launched the Nucleon 16 a little while back and I believe have actually started delivering a few of the production bikes to customers. So um, I guess the first thing I want to say is that a year and a half ago when we spoke, you were guesstimating that summer 2023 was going to be when the first production bikes would be showing up in the world. And well, you nailed that. So uh, well done there. Right, these, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> these development things never go as fast as anyone thinks they're going to. So um, good on you for actually pulling that off. Yeah. Yeah. It, a good rule of thumb is to try to make a best estimate um, with the reasoning of, you know, how things will, how the sequence of events will happen of when uh, you'll have a certain deadline of, you know, like starting to sell bikes and then just double that, <laughs> double that timeline. <laughs> that's, that's how it tends to go. Right. No, totally. I mean, there are companies who were, you know, I've talked to them about stuff they're prototyping, working on and, you know, been told like, yeah, I think we'll have the first prototypes in, you know, two years ago now. And still hasn't happened in this kind of thing. So I'm impressed that you've progressed as quickly as you have here. And uh, well, I guess a big part of that is that when we last spoke, you were operating out of your parents' basement still, but uh, that is no longer the case. So just tell us the story of how you got from that first, you know, set of prototypes in your parents' basement to moving across the country, setting up your shop. How's all that been going? Yeah, okay. So, it's been a heck of an adventure and uh, it's my first time going through this whole kind of process um, because I, when, I first, when I first thought of the Super Drive, I was just out of university. I just finished a master's in engineering and, and yeah, I was like, it was just a handful of months out of that. I had the idea and designed and built a frame to test that idea and that was working and then just continued and iterated that um, and ended up with a second frame with a, an evolved version of the super drive and then and then at, at that point yeah so it was a, the total was about three years at my parents place living there and and working in the basement building frames and, and drivetrain parts and, and iterating all of that and then and then yeah then I announced the super drive and um wasn't just sure what would come of that, but it turns out that people were, were super stoked about the idea. A lot of turns out a lot of people uh, mangle their derailers and and are keen about the solution. And yeah, so it was yeah it was about a month after after I revealed the Super Drive when we had our first podcast chat. And since then, there's been a whole lot of additional stuff that has happened. So around when I revealed the the Super Drive, a few investors reached out. And um, these are angel investors, so people who who not like uh, aggressive venture capitalists, but more like friendly people who are just keen about the vision, um, and I guess the founders and um, and the whole idea, and and just invested uh, with a spare change that they have, and so that was the total was about four hundred thousand Canadian that I ra- that I raised, and then that enabled me to move out of the parents' basement and buy a few tools. So I I, uh, I had the dilemma at that point of where would I set up shop? That's a really fun thing with entrepreneurship 
is that to an extent, depending on the venture, you can basically choose where you're going to work and where you're going to live. Because like there could be somewhere, you know, super remote um, or, or like really idyllic uh, where there wouldn't be the job that you would want, but you but you do want to live there. And like some people are, are fortunate to have the kind of software jobs where they can work remotely and do that kind of thing. But um, But in the hardware world, and we are very much in the hardware world, you get very constrained physically to where you, where you, um, you have to work. Um, and, and by inventing something and starting a company, you can just plop yourself where you want. So I, after, after I announced the super drive, I did this tour of coastal BC because I, I knew I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be in BC for, for one. Um, I love the, the culture and the mountains and the ocean and all that. And, uh, and then the, the, and then I also wanted to be in coastal BC so that I could test ride the drivetrain and, and bikes year round. Because in the interior, I would have the same problem that I had back in at my parents' place in, in Chelsea, Quebec, of of uh, having a solid portion of the year where you can't test anything. And that's really painful <laughs> uh, in the R and D process. So yeah, I knew I wanted to be in coastal BC. So I I did a trip to to several spots. I I went to to like Cumberland on the island and and um, and yeah, spent some time in Squamish and and a few other places. And um, and then right before I was leaving to go back home at the end of the trip, I was like, oh, I'll just go do a day on the Sunshine Coast, which is just a it's a forty minute ferry ride up from Vancouver um, across Howe Sound, uh, leaving from from West Vancouver. So it's like if you're going on your way to to Whistler, you can hop on a ferry and, and uh, head to the coast. And even though you have to take a ferry to get to the Sunshine Coast, it's not an island. It's it's part of the mainland. It's just that the terrain is so extreme to get to the Sunshine Coast that there is no road from the rest of the mainland. Um, like it would be, you could have a road from Squamish down to the Sunshine Coast, but it'd be absurdly expensive to build, and hasn't happened. So yeah, so it was towards the end of the trip. I was like, oh, I'll go check out the Sunshine Coast. So I just for a day. So I, I, I head over there with a bike and I, I biked up and down the coast for a day. And, and yeah, it was just at some point I was, I think I was in Davis Bay. And also, uh, when I was going through Roberts Creek, I, I just really liked the vibe and it hit me then and there that I wanted to live there. So at that point I started looking for industrial, uh, commercial real estate. I could rent like a little shop space that I could rent. So I, um, so I got some contacts on that one day when I was visiting and then, and then after when I was back at home in Chelsea, Quebec, at my parents' place for the next handful of months, I was coordinating, you know, how to, how to move there and figuring out a, a shop space to rent. Um, and then at that point it was, it, it got really wild for a sec because I, what I did is I did a trip to Germany to meet up with the folks at Nikolai and to visit their factory, um, also to measure the efficiency of the super drive um, with some some of uh, the equipment at UT, which is a company owned by Kali Nikolai, and uh, and then the return trip from that was to go straight to BC to move to BC. So that was that was a crazy time, um, and I was just being cheap and just not wanting to have the extra extra flights um, by going directly to BC. So. Yeah, so that uh, well, first of all, that trip was was quite something. Like, it's really cool to visit Nikolai, and and um, it's it's really neat to see the operation, like with all the the CNC machines and and the welding and, and everything that's going on there. It's quite something, even though they're a small company that that doesn't do a ton of frames per year. It's it's really cool to see it physically happen. Um, so that was fun, and 
measuring the efficiency of the super drive was also quite interesting. Uh, Alex actually, so it's it's funny because Alex reached out to me around the time when I revealed the the the, the drivetrain. So it was like around that crazy time when when people were stoked about it, and I was figuring out how to start a company and raise funds. Alex reached out, and I remember getting a getting a, this this pretty sizable email and uh, from Alex where he was saying that he wanted to to work for Lyle, and and I just remember getting the vibe that Alex was just like extremely keen and and. Uh, about about the whole thing and so at that point we started having uh, some video calls and what i like to do for 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 figuring out whether i want to work with someone which i think is pretty common is to do a sort of test project to see how well you, uh, you work together because it's there's only so much you can get from an interview right and what we figured what alex and i figured out at that point is that a good test project would be to, to work together remotely while alex was still in south africa uh, on designing some of the equipment that went into the efficiency tester for, for measuring the efficiency of the drivetrain. And because we were using a drivetrain test efficiency testing equipment that was actually, that was at UT. And so, like I said earlier, UT is um, it's owned by Cali Nikolai, but it's actually the European distributor of Gates carbon belts. Um, and, and what they had used that equipment for mainly was to compare the efficiency of the chain with the efficiency of a belt. So it was all set up for single speed, simple single speed drivetrain, essentially, right? Like a single speed chain or a single speed belt, and you can only have a single speed belt. Um, and we needed to design and build some equipment that would enable a derailleur drivetrain to be attached to that. There was both the idler pulley that needed to be mounted and also the, the, uh, the, the derailleur and the tensioner arm. Uh, and we were comparing the super drive to a regular derailleur drivetrain, so there's there is, it was, it was quite an interesting task. Um, and Alex helped me on the mount for the idler pulley. And, uh, so that worked out well. We got it. We got a, we got that designed together. And at that point I was like, okay, Alex has a, has a, you know, a head on his shoulders and, and, uh, can figure things out and it's, and like we get along and, and whatnot. So, um, so at that point I was like, okay, it sounds good. Like I'm keen to, to, for you to join the company. And, um, and then Alex, embarked on the 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 process of figuring out how to move to Canada and this wasn't just like a, this wasn't just like a, a, a temporary visa thing um, so part of this is that Alex wanted to permanently move uh, out of South Africa into Canada and uh, maybe maybe Alex you could talk a little bit about that that the, the challenge there yeah yeah I think it was in total probably probably close to a year or eight or eight or ten months that from when we worked on that efficiency test rig to Cedric saying, okay, cool, you've got a job. And then, and then the next step was, well, theoretically, if I look at all the, all the bureaucracy, it should take me just three to four months to get there. And, uh, <laughs> that was probably March 2022. And, and, um, I finally managed to sort all of that out in, in late December 2022. Um, yeah. And here we are. <laughs> quite a journey yeah, for, fortunately in british columbia there's this this process for getting technically skilled people to 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 have like an accelerated uh, immigration it's the bc pnp tech program right so if it wasn't for that it would have taken probably a heck of a lot longer yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah so that sped things up but even with that program having sped things up it was um it was still pretty long and and it's because you you actually have a, a master's in engineering right uh and that you did in south africa and that was on that was on uh, 
uh, like water sports stuff and, and hydrofoils, right? Yeah, yeah. So my, my background is, is mainly in, in sailing boats and composites. And, and I did both my undergraduate and postgraduate in, on hydrofoils. So quite a departure from, from what Lal is, but, but like Cedric said, the, um, luckily Canada's got a lot of programs to, to bring skilled young people specifically, um, into the provinces to sort of help build the economy. And, and yeah, I'm quite grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and Alex, I'd sort of love to wind back a little bit and hear your side of kind of the early part of you joining Lal though, because what sort of, inspired you to reach out in the first place and be like, there's this brand new fledgling company that has, you know, the lone founder employee thus far. I want to be number two. I mean, um, yeah, kind of a bold <laughs> swing to have taken. And yeah. Uh, yeah, where did that start? Yeah. 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 It's quite a, quite an interesting, my wife and I had been sort of toying with the idea of, of just moving from South Africa and, and trying to explore a bit while we, while we still could. And, you know, maybe find a different country to go and to go and live in for a few years, make some money or, or have an adventure. And then, and then, you know, it's, it's always easy to go back home when you want to, but it's once you miss that opportunity, it's really hard to, to ever take a big step like that again. So we basically, I think we basically sat with a world map and we looked at countries where, where we would, we would like to live, like where the lifestyle would match. Match what we want to do. So my wife is a is a big trail runner and, and works in the outdoor industry. So we needed somewhere that had mountains, and uh, from my sailing side of things, we also needed somewhere that had oceans. And then uh, I, I just started applying for for jobs basically in in all of these places. And this was quite a while before I for I you know reached out to Cedric. And I think I listened to a podcast or I saw some stuff on on. Um, yeah, on the launch of, of the Super Air Drive. And I thought, shit, that's a good idea. You know, uh, this guy obviously has some, some, yeah, some, some good foresight and, and interesting ideas. And, and I think you said in that first launch, you were, you were going to start a company at some point in, in coastal BC. And it, it ticked all the boxes. You know, it was a good place to live. It was a, it was a place where we'd want to move. And, and Canada has these immigration programs. And, um, typically, for someone with a like a South African passport, it's a bit difficult to get work permits and stuff to to go work overseas. It, it takes quite a while. So your two options are either you go through a massive big company that'll that'll do the immigration stuff for you, or you find a startup who who believes in you and isn't necessarily too stressed about the the time and the effort it takes to bring someone over. And um, and also having you, the having the willpower to, to, yeah. to do all the paperwork. Yeah, did, exactly. Like it's, it was a, it's, it's, it's pretty massive, the yeah, effort right. that you did. <laughs> yeah, it, you definitely have to. Uh, the immigration stuff is is not easy. You know, I often think a lot of people are worried about, about um, you know, about people coming into their country and, and having gone through that process. I can definitely tell you it's, the people who are making it through the other end definitely have put in a ton of effort and, you know, lots of their personal money and lots of their time because they really want to have a better life for themselves and, 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 you know, and go on an adventure and so on. So, yeah, it's, it, like you said, it's been, it's been a lot more effort than I expected initially. Um, mm -hmm. but, but it's really but here cool. Here you are. Yeah, here so we are. Now, now yeah, yeah, you're here. Your wife is here. Your dog yeah. Benji is here. My dogs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Perfect. Well, yeah, we got the team together, and to bring it back around to the 
super driving the bikes and whatnot. At the time of launch, Cedric, you know, you'd been you teased that you were working with a couple of bike companies, but weren't yet ready to say too much publicly about the particulars of who or what the bikes were going to look like. And, you know, as we said up top, we've got one of them out in the world, at least from Nikolai. Uh, but would be curious to hear a bit more about what the process of just getting bike companies on board has been like and what the response has been from various people you've been in touch with. And, you know, feel free to anonymize as much as you need to there. But just broadly speaking, what's the response from the industry been like? It's, it's been quite interesting. So the, the, like so many people in the industry are super supportive and they're just like, wow, this is awesome. Like good for you for just doing something so ballsy and, and different. And that solves a significant problem. And, um, but to go from that step of being really supportive of what we're doing to actually kind of investing themselves into the idea and, and going through and, and like developing, for example, a frame that's, that's, that's meant to be used with the super drive. That's a whole other thing. And there's not a lot of people who have either the capacity or the willpower to, to do that kind of thing. Cause it's even at the stage, like the super drive is becoming quite well proven, but it's, it's still quite audacious with the, to, to, to develop a frame for it. And um, yeah, so there's, Right now, um, and of course, the, the smaller smaller bike companies, they tend to be more nimble and more capable of doing the, this kind of thing. You know, like there's there's less kind of like people who need to, to, to approve it and whatnot for, for it to go ahead. So we I have been in discussions with, with bigger bike companies and they've been super interested, but uh, it's been quite slow, the, the progress. Um, and smaller bike companies, I would have expected more to, to jump on board. But one thing that, that's like one interesting dynamic is that I revealed the super drive when we were still in, in COVID mode. And, and COVID actually nailed a lot of, was really problematic for a lot of small bike companies, right? Um, because of those, those nuances with how the supply chains work, right? Where all the big bike companies had the, the power to hog all the, the, the bike parts and, um, and then the, the small bike companies were we're getting screwed, even though the, the demand has skyrocketed um, after the initial dip. So um, some small bike companies were telling me that they're actually like extremely, like the company, their company is extremely under stress and um, that would, that'd limit their ability to get involved. So that was one aspect of the whole thing. But but Nikolai, Nikolai reached out at the time. So Kali Nikolai himself reached out at the time when I uh, announced, uh, shortly after I announced the invention. And uh, we had a call and he's like, I'd like to build a, a bike that's equipped with your drivetrain. And I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so, um, and K Nikolai is, is well-established. Like Nikolai, the company is a little slightly younger than me. Like it's, I can't remember the exact date, but it's, it's like 26 years, something like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm 28. Um, but Nick, the point is Nikolai is, is well-established as a company and that makes them a bit more stable and and i guess they were they that made them more able to embark on this kind of thing uh, as a small nimble company despite the covid craziness and they're also just like in their nature really really ballsy and, and innovative and and open to new ideas when they make sense from an engineering point of view i guess it helps that Kelly nikolai the, the owner and founder is an engineer and um so yeah so we ended up working um 
we've been working ever since with with Nikolai and and it's been it's been super interesting to witness the the development of the Nikolai Nucleon 16 like they they went super fast to designing and building a first prototype um this was in early 2022 um so right after I announced the invention and and we had gotten in touch uh, at the end of 2021 they they went super fast to designing and building a first prototype and they have some really remarkable CNC machining capabilities in-house, but they wanted to go so fast that they actually had a bunch of the aluminum, um, the like more complex, complexly shaped aluminum parts of that of the frame. They had them three uh, D printed out of aluminum, and then they they welded uh, that first prototype frame together. Turns out the welder at Nikolai hated that <laughs> those those parts because they don't weld nicely compared to the the the, the more dense uh, uh, CNC machined aluminum parts. But yeah, they did that, and then that bike was it was getting tested, and it was revealed at Eurobike in 2022. And I went to Germany for Eurobike, and I was really wild to see because up to that point, I had I had witnessed a lot of stoke about the Superdrive online, but uh, Eurobike was really where I got to see that in person. So it was a it was a wild time with like so many people asking all kinds of questions and um, and getting to to. Uh, yeah, getting to witness that was really cool, and I also got to meet a bunch of super interesting people in the industry. It was like a fire hose of fun, interesting <laughs> information. Um, and yeah, and then at that point, the development continued. They 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 ended up um, several months later. They they built a batch of frame, like a first batch of frames that were um, that were with the, the CNC machine parts, and. And some of those frames were for a race team that they started, and um, also Nikolai. Uh, Nikolai. They also developed a a version of the swing arm of the Nucleon that's meant for conventional rear derailers and has a UDH mount at the rear, so that if people wanted to switch to the the conventional derailer, that they they would be able to even after having a Nucleon 16 frame. It'd just be a matter of changing the swing arm, and. Um, the race team was given the option of the regular derailleur and the super drive. They went for the super drive. That was pretty cool. Um, and since then, they've been doing quite well. Uh, Lena, um, so it's, there's three people on the, on the race team. There, there's Muffin, Tim, and Lena. Um, Muffin works at a bike park. Super funny, fun guy. Uh, Tim, smart guy. He's an engineer, uh, R&D engineer at Nikolai. And then Lena is actually a school teacher. And Lena has already won, I think, like four races by now it's it's just wild like it's at the it's at the german sort of national level of of, of racing uh, it's not it's not uh what do you call it, edr level stuff but uh but but still um it's i think it's a great balance where because the thing is when you get to the really high level high level racing i guess the racers have to be slightly more conservative with what technology they're using because the consequences are so high um but so this at this level of racing like these are extremely fast capable racers that are really helpful for for testing um, but at the same time, it's at a level of racing where they can they can be uh, courageous with like trying new things, new technologies, and, and setups. So yeah, so that's been really nice to have their feedback. Yeah. Then after that first batch of frames, well, actually, from that first batch of frames, uh, one of them was for us, and uh, so we have a, the the one Nikolai Nucleon sixteen that we currently have right now was from that first little batch. And it's, it's, it's essentially a pre-production frame because there's a bunch of little things that have been sorted out since. And 
we've been riding that frame a whole bunch and it's been it's been really fun it's just, it's a really fast uh, and fun bike so that's that's been really good news like this the super drive it it's itself like the shifting experience is it's the same as a full shimano drivetrain so it's not like you know when when you when you step on a super on a bike with a super drive it's uh, it doesn't really inherently change the experience much but so it's still totally up to the frame designer to do a good job of making a frame that that, that performs well. And Nikolai uh, did a fantastic job on on this bike, so we're we're stoked about that. And yeah, so we've been testing that this one frame. We're about to get a second one. Nikolai has been. We've also been shipping batches. We've uh, we we've been shipping batches of drivetrain parts to Nikolai, and they're just starting to ship these. Well, they've just recently been starting to to ship uh, Nikolai nucleons with our drivetrain to customers getting some images like I just was this morning of customers who have their bike with the super drive and the Nikolai Nucleon 16 frame and are, and are super stoked. So that's, that's really fun to see that start to happen and uh, out in the world there in Europe and elsewhere. And for, so for European, for European customers, we are sending the, the super drive parts to Nikolai. They're assembling them onto the, the frame and then, and then they provide the, the, the bike to the customer for North American customers, and so Canada and, and, and the U.S., we are the distributor for the for the Nikolai Nucleon 16, and and other Nikolai bikes. And so, with that, for those customers, Nikolai sends the frame to us. We assemble our drivetrain parts onto the frame, and then we send those to to North American North American customers. We're about to get a first batch of frames from Nikolai with that whole approach. So. You know, because there's no point sending the drivetrain parts across the pond and then having them come back on the frames. Um, so we have this arrangement, and Nikolai has, hasn't had a North American distributor, so um, that's been a pretty big uh, win-win. It's extremely expensive to ship an individual frame from Germany, like absurdly expensive. So by doing this distribution thing and having the frames shipped in batches, it massively reduces the, the cost of shipping the frames across the Atlantic per frame. So yeah, we're helping on the cost side, um, and also we we can offer after sales support for the frame with the, in the same time zone and language as uh, as the customers. So so yeah, that's been uh, that's been um, that's been a, the the whole technical side of seeing the frame get developed, like working with with Jens and, and others uh, and Nikolai who were who are um, kind of figuring out the the whole frame development has been super interesting, and. At the same time, a lot of the, the business dynamics has been really interesting to learn because I'm like Alex, I'm, I'm trained as an engineer. And before this whole thing, I was an engineering student. So I, I didn't have I, I haven't had much experience uh, with anything to do with business uh, in the world. And and so for this. Yeah. So the <laughs> the whole business side has been a heck of a learning curve for me, like from the time that I. Like revealing the drivetrain. Um, fortunately, I, I, Brian Park actually from Pink Bike helped me just figure out like how media works. So like that was really cool to learn from him for for that for the reveal, and because he and I had 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 chats before then uh, because of my my uh, an Instagram account that I ran called North American Bike Project, which is which is all about bike parts made in North America. But so fortunately through that I I got in touch with him and he was helpful for that. Um, but then after that for the for the investment. Um, at that point, for the the whole uh, process of raising funds, uh, a lot of that was just me figuring out the, the the details myself. But I also there's a program called the the Venture Acceleration Program in BC where you get mentorship from somebody who's experienced with business. So like Graham Truax through that he 
uh, as a mentor, he helped me figure out uh, uh, some of the investment aspects of how that, that works. And um, it's actually a really cool mechanism we're using for, for the first investors called a, a safe, um, simple agreement for future equity, but won't, won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, but it is interesting stuff. And then there's the whole patent side. So the patent thing that I had been working on for a while before the, the reveal. Uh, actually, at the time the reveal was 18 months in, uh, after I had filed the first patent application for the SuperDrive. And that, that was a heck of a, a learning curve because nor, like, you can't just pay a lawyer a ton of money to, to draft the patent, do all the, 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 the filing and all that stuff. But I decided that I would do it myself to save money because at the time when I was wanting to file a patent application, I hadn't revealed the, the drivetrain to the world yet. I only had, you know, a bunch of riding friends under non-disclosure agreement who knew about it. And like, they were all stoked, you know, a bunch of dudes were like, dude, this is wild. But, but still, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lot, it wasn't a, like a feedback from the overall market. So it's hard to say how much value there was in the, the, the drivetrain. And so therefore, it was hard to invest it to justify investing a ton of money into the patent process. So I was like, well, I'll just figure it out myself. And at this point, I was, I was working in my parents' basement, right? And, and um, so my living costs were low and I could afford to just spend a while figuring out how patents work. And so I, I bought some books about that and figured that out. So, um, but then I, at the same time, I, uh, the, the clever approach is to, is, to, um, is to do a lot of the legwork of writing a patent application, but then having a professional review it and refine it. So that's, that's what I did. And that went really well. And actually, this is an interesting update that uh, um, since the last time we had a podcast chat is that we actually got granted a patent. So we have our, actually, I have a physical copy, right? Well, listeners won't be able to see this, of course, but this, this is a physical copy of the, the, the US patent that we got granted. And we're also deep into the, the international process, the PCT process for getting the the, the, the patents uh, internationally in a number of countries and and that yeah so that's that's been huge because that that protects like the fundamental concept of the drivetrain invention uh, that I came up with and um, like the the drivetrain system right like having the tensioner that's separate from the derailleur and um, and then the ground clearance that results from that so yeah the whole patent side like I was, I was saying that the the, the patent side has been a huge learning curve. Um, and then there's, and then now we're doing manufacturing here, right? So we're, we're actually making these drivetrain parts in Canada. Um, I'm quite keen about that for an, a number of reasons. Um, uh, but there's, there's been a huge, huge learning curve for how all of that works, right? Like how working with vendors for, for purchasing CNC machine parts and, um, learning how to use a, an ERP system. It's an enterprise resource planning software which is commonly used in the industry for managing inventory and managing all little bits and bobs that you need to make a product uh, so like uh, we're using odoo and that's been going really well and uh, that's been fascinating like the it's effectively a form of automation um, instead of having to deal with painful spreadsheets you just have the system that that really efficiently tells you what you need to do for managing inventory and so that's that's been fascinating to climb that learning curve um, yeah there's just been there's just been all so much stuff that I've had to learn with, with business that has been really, really fun and, and interesting. Um, while at the same time in parallel, we're, we're doing a lot of, of technical work. Like I've been doing a ton of technical work and uh, like every day I'm working with Alex and, and we're, we're figuring things out, solving things, building things, improving things. 
And um, so, yeah, it's just a, it's a huge variety of, of tasks and has been quite, quite the adventure and quite the learning curve. Um, you can bring that back to the, the bike frame sort of question or the, or the bike manufacturer question is, um, is that since Nikolai is so agile, they're able to, to take what we offer and, and, and sort of work around that, work together with us and, and also provide us with some knowledge on, on bike frame manufacture. But, but in terms of approaching larger brands, they are often, they often have requirements from, from different um, sides within their company as well. Like a, I don't know, a bike these days has to have a water bottle, classic, you know, kind of, you know, you can't sell a bike without a water bottle and something like, uh, like down tube storage is quite a important thing these days as well. So, so some of the bigger companies actually have requirements on our drivetrain, which we still need to work to achieve. Um, you know, there's various different things, but, but a small company like Nikolai is willing to take what we offer and design around it. Whereas a bigger company, even though they might be incredibly keen to use our concept, have certain requirements that we need to fulfill first. So there's a lot of technical work um, on our side, redesigning and, and tweaking certain aspects of the drivetrain. And we, we can be, that's a very good point, but we can be specific about, about what we're yeah, dealing yeah. with. So like there's, there's a major bike company where they want down tube storage. And our drivetrain is currently designed so that the, the chain tensioner arm that pivots about, about the bottom bracket axis, it's connected by a little cable to a, a cartridge that's in the down tube. And it's this long, thin assembly that's in the down tube, and it has a spring and a damper for the chain tensioner. And this system works super well. Like, the, the, the damper is hydraulic, so it, it, it damps the, the chain tensioner much better than the way the, the clutch does on a derailleur, which is a form of damper. And it's also, there's no wearing surfaces, so it's, it's way more durable than, than the clutch on regular derailers. But, so the system works super well, but it is a long, thin thing that's up in the down tube. And um, you can't see it on the Nikolai bikes, but, but it's there. And yeah, we've had a major bike company say that they need down tube storage. So we're in the midst of developing a cartridge that won't take up the down tube space. And that's going to be quite a bit more compact. I'm not going to say any details. But beyond that, but uh, but it is something that we're we're working on, and, and I'm confident we'll 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 achieve. Um, but it it um, that does delay things with working with the bigger bike company. Yeah, and I was curious to ask kind of a tangentially related question about the Nucleon too. Is um, I'd be curious to hear a bit more about just sort of how that interaction with Nikolai worked as far as the frame development goes. Was it sort of the case where you're sending them? technical information just about you know fitting everything up and how to make a bike compatible with the super drive as you designed it and they took it from there or were you more involved in the particulars of the frame design itself or how did that all come together that's a good question the the okay so there's there's two things like what are the specific constraints of the super drive on the frame and then also just like how do i go about communicating with bike companies about the requirements well for communicating with the bike companies i have what i call an info package which has a bunch of information about the the what the implications of of, uh, of designing a frame around the super drive it includes 3d models of the chain and the derailleur in its range of motion and the chain tensioner and the chain is also there's it's modeled in all the different gears and so that way the the frame designers can really design around the, like physically design around the drivetrain parts but there's also engineering drawings 
of how the derailleur mounts, how the chain tensioner mounts to the bottom bracket shell, how the um, and and the yeah. So that's that's a whole info package. And in terms of the so I provide that to to the bike companies, and uh, I've gotten feedback from bike companies that it's actually like an exceptionally good um, uh, uh, package of information. So um, so I think that has worked well. Uh, at the same time, working with bike companies, I have learned things that has made me refine that info package. So, um, but yeah, that's that's what I that's what we provide to bike companies that are interested in designing a frame for the super drive. It's like this, this complete information package under non-disclosure agreement, um, and we're willing to provide that to anyone who wants to design a frame for the super drive. But in terms of the actual constraints of the super drive on the on the frame the the main thing i'd say is the well there's obviously the the you know you need to have the mounts for the the derailleur which is like two two bolts at specific location you you need to have a, a slight feature on the outside of the bottom bracket shell for mounting the 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 tension arm but a pre pretty major thing is the location of the idler pulley to have the super drive work with a wide range cassette the tensioner arm needs to have a it has a pretty big range of motion of rotation around the bottom bracket axis and that range of motion, to, to enable that range of motion, you need to have that, that front section of chain far enough forward. And I'm talking about the section of chain from the, the chain ring to the idler pulley. It's like, a, you know, on a hype of a bike, it tends to be close to vertical, that section of chain. It needs to be far enough forward with the super drive, one using a wide range cassette, so that the chain tensioner arm has enough range of motion. And that then constrains the position of the idler pulley to be fair, fairly far forward. So, that's so that's a that's a constraint of the super drive on on frame designs. Basically, you have to deal with that idler pulley position, and there's there's a lot of possibilities for frame designs that that work well with that. But it's just it's it's unusual. So um, frame designers aren't used to it. Uh, it's al there's also some interesting benefits to that by making the idler pulley so far forward. It reduces the cross chaining angles of the chain uh, quite significantly, which reduces friction and wear on on the chain and, and the cassette and idler pulley. But um, but it is it is tricky, and what for with Nikolai, what I had done is I simply recommended a sort of baseline suspension system is to have a single pivot with the idler pulley connected to the the swing arm, and I suggested like a default location of the of the main pivot and the idler pulley, and the idler pulley's position that's the more kind of like a rigid constraint. But they they ended up going with a they ended up going with the main pivot position that that made the anti squat. Uh, really high and higher than I expect expected would work well, but it turns out that that uh, you can have really high anti squat hype of a bike without the major drawback of uh, without the drawback of of too much pedal kickback, because either pulleys and hype of bikes have that magical effect of having very minimal pedal kickback. And so, yeah, so so Nikolai, yeah, so that's basically the, the process. Like I, I suggested a, an either pulley position and then a main pivot position. Nikolai went with the idler pulley position, but they tweaked the main pivot position to have more anti-squat. And the the linkage that drives the shock, though, that's one hundred percent Nikolai. I didn't have any input on that. Like that's that that's uh, that that's not re related to the drivetrain. That just affects like your leverage ratio curve for a single pivot bike. So yeah, so that's that's. Uh, hope that answers the question. Yeah. yeah, it does, and it's just sort of a little bit of an interesting place to be in where you've you know you're making this drivetrain that imposes you know not 
necessarily dramatic ones, but certain constraints on the frame design. And although to be clear, if the if it's not a wide range cassette, like if you have say a DH cassette, there you can have a very normal idler pulley position. So a, a DH, a downhill version of the Super Drive would be less constraining. And is is to be honest, like from a technological point of view, in terms of the benefits for a downhill bike, is, is to me it's a no brainer uh, to have a downhill version of the Super Drive. It's just we don't currently have the bandwidth for developing that. But if anybody wants to do it and license the the, the drivetrain uh, uh, tech, then they're welcome to do that. I was going to ask about that because when you said for a wide range cassette rather pointedly a minute ago, that sounded like yes. a, you were really seeing <laughs> yeah. that one up. Yep. Okay, so no downhill super drive bike coming tomorrow, but uh, <laughs> it no. would make a bunch of sense, yeah. And I mean, along with that, how's the ramp up of manufacturing going as we've touched on a few times you know you're making the super drive specific parts at least yourself and i guess it might be worth reminding people giving a little bit of a rundown of kind of what is super drive specific as opposed to being off the shelf shimano parts and how that's all going together and just what's it been like figuring out how to actually make these things at some scale rather than just doing one-off prototypes yeah. So designing designing a, a uh, something like like, like a derailleur and, and whatnot like that's it's technically quite challenging, but then to manufacture it efficiently is a whole other challenge. Like manufacturing is is uh, yeah with with all the because when you want to do it when you want to do a one off you know it's okay if it takes hours and hours to do one little task because um, it's just a one off. But if you're doing big quantities of, of something in a, in a production line, you need to do it efficiently. And, and therefore, often that involves designing equipment to make that work efficient. Um, at the extreme end of that scale, you have just robots like fully handling some, some manufacturing task. And, uh, and you call that lights out manufacturing. When you can just turn off the lights in your factory, go home, and then it keeps humming along. And in the morning when you show up, you know, there's a whole bunch of parts that are there made ready for you. Um, so that's that's the extreme end of the spectrum. But basically, we're we're we make a lot of a lot of our effort goes into just uh, getting to some extent in that direction of just making our our, our the the work uh, happen more efficiently. And um, Alex actually has been helping me a bunch with with uh, with a lot of that, like a lot of the the equipment that we've been using and processes that we're developing for manufacturing. So maybe Alex, you could share some insight. Into yeah, that. sure. So uh, I guess to answer the first part of your question, we. The Supra drive is um, is actually a lot more similar to a conventional drivetrain than, than a lot of people think. There's there's the same amount of pulleys um, as a normal hyperbit drivetrain. Just uh, I'm sure that's covered in in basically all of our other media. But if you count the pulleys, it's it's the same as a hyperbit bike. All we've basically done is taken the the tension part of the derailleur and moved it to the middle of the drivetrain. So in terms of what actually is our drivetrain, we have a we have a derailleur which is kind of like a it looks like half of a normal derailleur. <laughs> and then we have a, a chain tensioner, which is this arm that rotates concentrically around the bottom bracket, and it's got a pulley on it. And then we have a, a, a tension, at the moment it's a tensioner cartridge, which lives inside the down tube, and that actually um, tensions the tensioner arm. So we produce those those parts. And then um, in terms of the rest of the drivetrain, we piggyback on, on Shimano uh, chains and and cassettes, as well as Shimano shifters. Um, there's some interesting stuff that we're doing to the shifter and playing around on the shifter side of things. Um, 
which we can can get into at a different time. But but basically, it's a stock standard Shimano 12-speed um, shifter chain and, and cassette, and then our our drivetrain parts, the derailleur, the tension arm, and the and the cartridge. And um, yeah, we we made quite a big change as soon as I joined um, when we stepped from from the, the few prototype parts to the actual production parts, where we moved from having plastic derailleur links. Um, which were basically the entire derailleur was 3D printed, and now we have um, aluminium derailleur links, which are which are CNC machined by by North Shore Billet in, in Whistler. So that was quite a quite a big step to move to parts of our drivetrain being CNC machined um, by suppliers and parts of our drivetrain being being made ourselves. But basically, we we 3D print. All of the plastic parts um, of the of the drivetrain in house. That's our sort of at the moment. That's our production method, which is it has a lot of merits in terms of I can come up with an idea in the morning, design it, print it by lunchtime, and and have the derailleur in the evening to test. So the three D printing is is amazing by that, and the number of iterations that we've gone through or that we go through on a single day is probably like three or four iterations of a single part every day. So something like injection molding just isn't feasible at the moment and and the printing's also got its own drawbacks um in terms of mechanical properties and and in terms of cost and scalability and stuff like that but for where we are now it's it's working well um and then yeah and then the the other side of of things is the assembly which is which is its own its own beast so we basically as cedric was saying we basically spend a lot of time building uh tools or jigs that help us assemble the derailleur and and do the QC and do the sort of um, the the tasks that need to be repeatable um, on, on the derailleur. And um, I think we're kind of still in that stage of figuring out what's the best way to, once we've made all these parts, what's the best way to put them together. Um, at the moment, it's just two of us by hand. So it takes us, I don't know, it, 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 whenever we have a production deadline, it's kind of like, we kind of book out a week and then we just know, okay, it's going to be a week of late nights and then putting things together. But, um, but yeah, it's quite an experience. And I think every batch that we do, we have gotten infinitely more efficient, you know, with, we realize once you've clipped a circlip into the tension arm, like a hundred times, you know, the fastest way to do it. And you know how you need to hold everything and you can design a tool that holds the tension arm in the right way and so on. So it's kind of this, this, um, trial and error process of of uh hitting your banging your head against the wall a hundred times and then realizing okay if we just design this little tool it'll it'll speed things up but at the same time we we quite far away from from being able to manufacture at the scale that we need to but that's another step towards this this kind of manufacturing that Cedric was talking about this lights out manufacturing where we need to to bring stuff in-house and then and then automate um as much as possible but we need some more. We need some more frame manufacturers, and we, we need to wait for more bikes to get out there before we uh, embark on that. Yeah, because with the local manufacturing, there's there's some awesome advantages, right? Like there's the there's the the environmental benefits of of doing it locally, and you know having a bit of control over the environmental regulations of where the manufacturing is happening. There's the social benefits, you know, of having control over the working conditions of people who are doing the manufacturing work, and then there's the huge benefits for the local economy. Uh, and there's then there's uh, then there's benefits for the customer of us being able to provide really good support by actually making the parts ourselves. Like if 
you know, if something breaks, we can we can just like build a replacement. Um, whereas if another company is importing stuff and they've ran out of the parts, you know, it, it might take like six months or something to get a replacement part. And um, so there's we can we can support customers really well, and it makes us nimble with with improving things um, and coming up with new ideas. Like we can move really quickly. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of big benefits of the local manufacturing, but it is super challenging. And like Alex is saying, in terms of scaling, and um, yeah, so the we we can only we can only grow so fast. We can only scale our operations so fast. Whereas if you outsource the manufacturing to a company that already has a gigantic factory, like they can just you know they can very quickly just increase the amount of res- resources allocated to manufacturing your product. Whereas we actually need to like buy the equipment, you know, like move into new spaces. Um, hire the people, all of that, which takes way longer. So, um, yeah. So, so it's 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 um it's quite challenging in that regard. Also, in terms of cost, because of course, with the local manufacturing, like we're we're the the there's Canadian salaries here um, that propagate into the cost of the the product as as opposed to like salaries of people overseas. And so, but then um, yeah. So. So those two things make the local manufacturing pretty challenging, and it's it's an interesting dilemma because if you if you do manufacture overseas, like you can make the product more affordable and therefore more accessible to people, and there's there's value in that, right? Of just like making it affordable, so you know people who aren't too wealthy like can still afford it. Um, but then then there's all the benefits of local manufacturing. So it's a, it's an interesting debate, but we aspire to just growing to the point where we can actually bring our costs down. And be really efficient despite doing the manufacturing locally and to get there we just need to work really hard and smart and and uh, for the whole thing to become to, for the whole operation to become bigger and uh, yeah to that end we need we'll need to just have more bikes going out into the world with our drivetrain dealing with bigger quantities and we we'll also need investment so if anybody's interested in investing in loud bikes uh, we are we're open and interested and um yeah so there's some some interesting challenges there but uh yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's good fun overall. Yeah, and I think this has just been a really interesting and particularly kind of open look into what it takes to launch a company making a very unique bike product, and uh, you know it's exciting to see bikes shipping out and getting out into the world. And uh, I am certainly looking forward to getting some time on one when we're able to make that happen. And um, just thank you both for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot, David. Yeah, thanks. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I'd also like to say thanks to Cedric and Alex for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.